This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Lynn Twist is joined in conversation by CIIS Provost Liz Bevan to discuss the power money wields over our lives and how we can empower ourselves to reconceptualize it. This event was recorded on March 22, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. That's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Good evening, everyone, and a warm, warm welcome um, to what I suspect is going to be a very rich, thought-provoking conversation with Lynn, and then an opportunity for all of you to be in dialogue with your questions. And we're about to be adjusted. Um, yes, so, <laughs> I just bumped the microphone. You did. Um, so it's really my great privilege and honor to meet you, Lynn, and to have this conversation. I've known about your work for a long time. Um, and when I was invited by public programs to interview you, um, I was excited. And then I had the maybe rather obvious question for many of us of having worked uh, in education and nonprofits for all of my life and skillfully avoided long-term questions about money, why was <laughs> I about to enter into this uh, conversation on this really interesting topic? But I found again and again as I read your book, um, I had to stop and ask questions about some of your fundamental premises about the flow of money, the purpose of money, uh, this goal of uh, this connection of soul and money, and the idea, the, the breathtaking and exciting idea that there is enough. And that if we set our intention to it, we could live in a world of equity and enough. So with that, I would really like to invite you to tell us your vision there. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Which is a nice, easy starter we'll, we'll, question. We'll start simple. We'll kind get hard as, as the hour goes on. Yep. Um, well, let's see. I, I, I don't know if I'll actually answer that question, but I'll respond. How Good. about that? That's perfect. Um, well, I I think the this book, The Soul of Money, um, really came out of years and years and years and years of fundraising um, and giving money myself. But um, really, the the lessons that I've learned about money have come from uh, really uh, raising hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars and um, not from like one or two people, but thousands and thousands and thousands of people, people giving $50 and $10 and $100 and $10,000 sometimes. And when I'm lucky, you know, $50,000. But um, uh, for the work that the Hunger Project uh, was doing for many years that I was responsible for all the fundraising for ending world hunger, um, 
uh, I entered into a, a, a world of uh, a, a really working with some of the most resource poor people on this planet, people living in conditions of hunger and poverty, uh, and um, being responsible for fundraising, uh, working wherever I could find them of some of the most with some of the most resource rich people on the planet, and. Um, I call them resource poor and resource rich rather than poor people and rich people because when I really came to know people that I used to call poor, um, people living in horrendous conditions of poverty, post-war situations, refugee camps, places where uh, you know just making ends meet every single day is, is a huge, huge challenge and accomplishment, I realized there's nothing poor about these people, actually. They're some of the most uh, resilient, creative, innovative, and courageous people on this planet. They have to be. And they may not know how to read or write. Uh, they may not have access to uh, communication systems. They may not have been to school. But they exhibit more courage to live through one day than you and I are going to need in our whole lifetime. And to label them poor is so is such a misrepresentation of who they are. Um, and it demeans them, and it demeans those of us who would label them that way. Um, because they're whole and complete people living in the tragic circumstances of poverty and hunger. So what's poor is their circumstances, but not them. And we, in the way we have languaged and organized our world, we label people by their circumstances. We make it who they are when it's not who they are at all. So in fact, you know, women in Ethiopia after the 1984-1985 famine, um, people in Mozambique after that brutal war, uh, more recently uh, women and men that um, Sarah and I have met in Liberia, uh, people living in, in, in incredibly difficult conditions uh, in, in parts of the world that uh, even here in the United States, when you really get to know them and work with them side by side, they're exquisite, breathtakingly courageous, incredibly creative. Um, and their circumstances are poor, yes, but they're not. So I never use those labels anymore. And the same thing is true with people that I used to call rich. I used to call them rich, and I was always looking for them, by the way. When you're a fundraiser, where are they? What's their phone number? How you can you know get their email address or uh, figure out how to get an introduction? But I realize now that even that label is demeaning to them and to ourselves when we call someone rich or s someone wealthy. Um, because they, too are whole and complete people living in the sometimes oppressive circumstances of excessive resources. Now, I know we all want that for ourselves and we think it would be great, but I can tell you from the years of working with people um, living in, in resource-rich circumstances, some of our most troubled and tragic families 
are swimming in more money they could po- than they can possibly spend. Um, they're, uh, they, they live in a kind of um, – they're so uncentered with that kind of financial power. Um, and raising children in that kind of a world is – and that kind of an understanding of the – a misunderstanding of life really uh, breeds a kind of um, – well, there's lots of uh, – there's lots of addiction in these families often, not always, but often abandonment issues, um, really serious, uh, serious problems. And the money amplifies it rather than resolves it. It, it actually makes it worse um, because you can buy your way out of anything so you don't really need to ever deal with it. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Now that's not every family. There's some fabulous families of wealth, but I'm 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 just pointing to what we do when we label people by their circumstances, even if we call them, you know, conservative or or liberal. Uh, we can't see them anymore, and it's particularly true with people's economic circumstances. Um, uh, and we also then buy it ourselves. So people that I used to call poor or that the world calls poor, they start thinking they are poor, you know, that there's something wrong with them. So um, we, we've done so much mischief, tragic mischief to each other in our relationships with money. Um, so in the world of fundraising, you know, uh, fundraising for ending world hunger, uh, you would think that I was working to, you know, get money from over here where people have too much and put it over here where people don't have enough. But that's not actually what I think is useful. Now, that's a good thing. I don't mean to stop people from doing that. I'm just saying what's really powerful in the whole world of fundraising is to realize, particularly with hunger, that there's the front and the back side of the hand of hunger. The front side of the hand of hunger is um, is the hunger uh, that we experience um, physically, malnutrition, malabsorptive hunger, seasonal hunger, starvation, really tremendous physical suffering. The back side of the hand of hunger is the hunger for meaning, the hunger to make a difference with our life, the hunger to matter. And it you can't end this hunger, the front side of the hand, without addressing the backside of the hand of hunger, uh, to realize it's, it's a wholeness in the integrity of the human family, in our relationship with one another, in recognizing who each other are, that's really the key to ending hunger. So in all of the fundraising we did for the Hunger Project, and this is still the case for that organization, that movement, um, people actually sharing their resources or reallocating their own resources in a way that recognizes the dignity, the courage of the billion people who are standing on the front lines of ending world hunger. Uh, We don't need to feed them. What we need to do is stand with them in finding the way through to have a chance for a healthy and productive life where they become self-reliant and self-sufficient and we become their partners in doing so. So it's what I'm saying is is kind of a, a framework for how I really got involved in this whole thing about money and soul uh, because we've 
our relationship with money is so separated from our spirituality, so devoid of soul, so um, vapid, so empty compared to every 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 other part of our life, uh, that we we have a relationship with it that's troubled, that has tremendous suffering, anxiety, hurt, wounds, and almost everybody, in, including people of enormous, enormous financial resources, feel guilty, bad, and wrong in their relationship with money. It's not just some of us. It's pretty much all of us. So I can't remember your question, but do, did no. I get anywhere <laughs> close to it? My question? <laughs> Um, yes, that's wonderful. Um, so I could go many places now, but I'd like, I'd like to take us back a little bit because the wonderful thing about Lynn's book, if you haven't read it yet, I really recommend that you do because you will encounter yourself um, through these questions and images. But Lynn te- uh, speaks through images. She tells human stories again and again to illustrate the work that she is doing. I'm speaking about you and this relationship of ours to money. So I'd like to go back a little bit because what you're describing with passion seems to be a recognition of your life purpose, your destiny. And when you look back as to what set you off on that, from your own background. For example, when I read this, if I look at scarcity and sufficiency, I realize my life has been much more aligned around principles of scarcity. It's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably true for many of us. Mm-hmm. But what was it that allowed you to reframe your personal view of power and a relationship to money? Um, well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not really sure if I can, you know, make it something logical, um, because, you know, when you have a insider transformation, uh, something may catalyze it, but it doesn't necessarily all fall into place and make sense right away. But um, I had the the great honor and privilege of, of knowing Buckminster Fuller. And um, Buckminster Fuller, for people who are a lot younger than me, may not know that he was a great thinker, a humanitarian. Um, he was technically an engineer and an architect, and he lived in the 20th century and um, was often called by those who admired him the grandfather of the future because his ideas were very uh, outside of the box. And um, he was a, a, a very important person in my life. I um, I was sort of hooked on, people call him Bucky, hooked on Bucky. <laughs> And wanted to hear him speak all the time whenever I could. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't understand him. And I think that was kind of a blessing. I, it's kind of funny to say it this way, but I did not understand almost anything he was talking about. <laughs> because he was so brilliant. Um, but what I did get was who he was. And um, there's a wonderful quote from Emerson <clears throat> That, that fits this experience I had of Buckminster Fuller. Um, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. And who Bucky was spoke to me. He was a, a short little kind of fire plug of a man. You know, I didn't know him till he was in his late 70s and 80s. And he was bald and had really thick glasses. And um, he, uh, his whole life, uh, he con- he considered suicide when he was 27. <clears throat> he had failed. He had left Harvard University. He 
can't remember the whole story, but he had failed to, to support his family. He had a wife and a daughter. He'd been in the military. He, he just felt his life was a failure. And he thought about just, you know, giving up. And he was standing on the banks of a river and he was contemplating suicide. And he made a decision and he said, if, my, if I am a throwaway human being, what would it take to take this throwaway human being, an ordinary individual, he called himself, and devote my life to see if one human being could make a difference that would impact all of humanity? Since my life is sort of a throwaway life, what if I, instead of throwing it away, I dedicated it to see if one ordinary human being could live a life that could impact the future of all humanity? Very, very bold statement. And he did that. He lived that life. His life was an experiment. And he was an extraordinary thinker. You know, he said he was ordinary. I'd say he was extraordinary. And so I, um, to go back to your question, I heard him speak at the Marin Civic Center, not far from where we're having this interview, in 1976. And I think maybe it was 1978, but anyway, 1970-something. And I was a young, starry-eyed kind of follower of Buckminster Fuller. And he was um, giving a talk uh, on integrity. He, he, when he was 80 years old, he did 80 integrity days all over the world on the intellectual integrity of the universe. Well, I didn't follow that at all, but I loved him. He was so, I don't know, he's just like a kind of a grandpa. You just loved him. And um, at one point, he he stopped what he was talking about, which was very sort of sounded sort of technical to me about tetrahedrons and icosahedrons. And he sort of stopped and walked in front right at the edge of the stage and looked out at the audience and he said, now I'm going to say the most important thing I've ever said or ever will say. And I thought, this is the one thing I really want to understand. <laughs> you know, so I sat up in my chair and I got ready to really listen. And and this is in 1976, so <clears throat> he said, humanity has passed a critical threshold. And he put his arm out in front of him, and, and you know, there was this side of his arm and that side of his arm. And he said, uh, and that threshold changes everything. And that threshold is recent. Now, when Buckminster Fuller said recent, he sometimes meant in the last 50 or 100 years because he, he spoke in huge swaths of time. He was that kind of a thinker. And he said that that threshold is this. We, uh, hum, human beings are so ingenious and the direction of our genius, the direction of our innovation, the gr direction of our creativity is that we are now doing so much more with so much less and that is the direction of the way we are evolving and thinking and creating and innovating. We are doing so much more with so much less that we now live in a world where everyone everywhere can have a healthy and productive life because there is enough for everyone everywhere to have a chance at a healthy and productive life. Now, that sentence. I don't know that I understood it then, but I had um, what 
what people call a kundalini thing go up my spine. I, I didn't know what to call it at that time. I was a young woman. I didn't know that term. I started to cry. I started to perspire. My hands started to get sweaty. I, I knew so I'd heard something really, really remarkable. And it was kind of triggered by this world enough. He said, we have sufficient resources on this planet for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. He said that means we move from a paradigm of you or me, that is, you make it at my expense because there's not enough for both of us, or I make it at your expense because there's not enough for both of us. That's a you or me scarcity paradigm. Two, on the other side of his line of demarcation, a you and me world where you and I can both make it at no one's expense. So from a you or me world, a world of scarce resources, scarcity, to a you and me world, where you and I can both make it at no one's expense. And um, he talked in this term, enough, sufficient. These words sort of went right into my heart. And then he said, but... We will not achieve this new paradigm for 50 years. Now, he said this in 1976. Getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, He said, because all of the institutions of humankind are rooted in a you or me understanding of the world, a scarcity paradigm. He said, the economy is clearly rooted in a scarcity paradigm, you or me paradigm. Education, he said, is clearly rooted in a you-or-me paradigm. He said governance is rooted in a you-or-me paradigm. Even religion, he said, is rooted in a you-or-me paradigm. He said it will take 50 years for these institutions to become so inoperable, so dysfunctional, that they will start to fall apart at the seams, rot from within, and they won't be fixable. Uh, we will need to, they will fall apart completely and dissolve. And we will need to recreate the great institutions of humankind from a new paradigm, a you and me paradigm, a paradigm of enough, a paradigm of sufficient resources for everyone everywhere to live a healthy and productive life. So when he said all this, I'm crying. I don't understand what he's talking about. I completely moved, but I don't I could never have explained it to anybody. Um, but then he said something really that really confused me. It probably confused you too, but I'll just say it. He said, this thing, sufficiency, this distinction of sufficiency or enough, is not an amount. It's not an amount. It's a state of being. It's a way of being. After that experience... Um, the Hunger Project began, and I began working on ending world hunger. And Buckminster Fuller was very involved in the Hunger Project in the early days. After that, I went to India and saw abject poverty for the first time with my own eyes. I, I, I started working in Africa. I saw what most people would be um, describing as such tragedy, such um, horrendous uh, circumstances that you could not even bear it. What I saw was people's wholeness, their sufficiency, their enoughness. 
I mean, it was it was miraculous. And even in Ethiopia after the famine, um, I have a lot of stories about that, but I, I sat with people after that famine. I sat with women who'd lost every single child to starvation. And what I saw in them was the resilience, the courage, the capacity to create the second half, to their, half of their life as childless mothers and really be something. Um, and this idea of sufficiency became kind of the principle, um, the, the lens, the way I started to see everything. Now, it's not that I was never, you know, hoping to get more sleep or earn more money, but my, my paradigm shifted. And, um, and that's really where this, this sort of journey that I've been on began. And I would say the encounter with Buckminster Fuller, and it was also after I'd taken the EST training, and here at CIIS, I'm sure people either remember the S training or certainly know about its its uh, its um, successor, the Landmark Education Corporation. That training really woke me up, uh, and re- really, uh, I feel that 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 kind of education, which a lot of what's happening here at CIIS, uh, waking people up out of the trance, out of the malaise, out of the numbness. Uh, is I was awake enough to really hear this distinction of sufficiency, which then became almost like a mantra for me uh, and the context for the rest of my life. And out of that, I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. I've worked on hunger uh, in a way that we've had incredible victories and the things that, that I couldn't have imagined. And I now work with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon. So there's a whole world that came out of that um, that encounter with Buckminster Fuller. Mm. Thank you. And probably a biography that led you to that point with some experiences and encounters, because I want to ask you later about our little ones. But I'd like to take us back to Bucky's arm. And I think, if I'm correct, um, maybe it's just me, that most of us feel a little trapped mm-hmm. <laughs> on the side that is scarcity. Yes. Um, and as we witness things falling apart at the seams um, and we are so much more exposed to a global situation, so we can't pretend we don't see it, how do we collectively move from one to the other. I think many of us are living in fear with what Mm -hmm. we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the ideal, which is not real to many of us. Mm -hmm. It's a big shift. Yeah. Is it one person, one story at a time, or is it something different? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that question. (laughs) I don't really know. I think we're trapped, all of us, including myself, in uh, systems and structures that we need to just let go um, you know, we say in the Pachamama Alliance <clears throat> educational programs that the real job of our time is to hospice the death of the old structures and systems that no longer serve us. They are dying. They are falling apart. They are dysfunctional. And rather than attack them or kill them or even try to fix them, I'm suggesting, and this is one suggestion, that we hospice the natural death of that which is unsustainable, which is pretty much every structure and system we're living inside of. And when you hospice that which is dying, it dies with some dignity and grace and, and dies faster. Mm-hmm. While, we, 
Really? Yeah. While we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems that we know will serve us. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not an economist. I, I don't know anything about finance. So I'm sort of out of, my, out of my league when I say this next thing. But the whole money system, the whole economic system is so broken, is so off. I mean, here we are sitting in this building in the south of Market Street in San Francisco that is now in a neighborhood where people used to live in, you know, kind of hotels that were $10 a night, and now they can't even begin to live in this area. Um, we're in a, 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 a catch-22 with our economic system that is so not working. And I, I have this uh, relationship with some young um very, very brilliant uh, young tech entrepreneurs who are who've made their fortune. They don't need to work anymore, and they realize they made their fortune on the backs of and at the expense of billions of people. And they're uh, conscious and awake enough to uh, they're going to spend the rest of their life working on uh, a new economic system that they call. Uh, a win-for-all system, a completely new economic system <clears throat> that is not what they call rivalrous. Rivalrous, where you have to, um, you have to, in order to win, many, 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 many people need to lose. Um, and so I'm not an expert in economics, but I know the system that we're in is broken, that it's driving us all nuts, including people who are the winners, of the game, they're going crazy too. They have way more money than people can dream of in a lifetime. Um, and it's, it's, it's making them miserable. Um, and none of us know what to do and it's kind of a runaway game and it's destroying our natural world. It's destroying our relationship with each other. It's making it almost impossible to, um, to, to find balance in life. And it's, um, we're in, you know, we're in, we're in trouble. Everybody feels it. Everybody knows it. Um, and there are some creative geniuses who are who are afoot. <laughs> I want to report uh, working on uh, a completely new system based in completely different principles: principles of sufficiency, principles of enough, uh, a win-for-all system. I know there's many people working on that. I'm just connected with some um, some of them. So um, I think we need to step out of um, the old and into the new. I don't think then we can repair much of what is, we can do a much better job in the structures and systems in which we're trapped. We can be much more conscious, but uh, I think we need to reinvent the world. That's what I think we need to do. And I think CIS is one of the places that's working on that. So I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. We're glad to have you, believe me. <laughs> so, um, because I'm sitting in this chair, I get to ask some of the things that really struck me. And you mentioned being in this building and being in this city and change. Um, and I suspect most of us spend time in this city because we're here. Um, and I was struck in the book when you talked about your first trip to India mm. and walking with, was it Ram Krishna? Ram Krishna, yeah. Uh, th through the beggars mm -hmm. and how he didn't react, didn't mm -hmm. interact with them, didn't mm -hmm. even seem to see them. And what was that? So I'd like 
you to talk a little bit about what I call the ethical dilemma of getting to work, which is um, for me when I was walking, coming up the stairs, at, well, it starts on BART, but coming up the stairs just a couple of blocks from here and walking daily not looking or not quite knowing how to react to the people who can't afford to live here but the people who are living on the streets mm-hmm. in one of the most in some ways, evolved cities in the world. Um, and what is this a picture of? And what? how does that fit with this sufficiency, scarcity? And what's, what's right deed? Oh, my goodness, your questions are so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll comment. Mm-hmm. Can I comment instead of answer? Mm-hmm. It's so much easier. <laughs> um, well, I, 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 one of the things that really, um, it's almost like adding to your question rather than answering it. One of the things that really, really, really pains me is that exact thing. Um, and I'll just say something that makes it, even worse, um, is that here we are in the Bay Area, and I think we will all uh, probably attest to the fact that if you go to Emeryville or San Carlos or maybe up by Santa Rosa, you'll see there are these um, little cities, little villages of storage units, like little houses some of them have kind of gingerbread on the outside. They're kind of cute. <laughs> um, or uh, buildings for our stuff. Yes. They're everywhere. That we can't fit mm-hmm. in the houses we have because they're so filled with stuff that we have to rent another little apartment or little house. Stuff holder. It's mm-hmm. called storage. Yes. They're in the city as well, by the way. Yeah. They're, uh, they're here too. Mm-hmm. So here right we are. Next door. With millions and, you know, I don't know how many, but thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people here in the Bay Area and in every city in in the United States. And we're not building houses for them. No, we're building houses for the stuff we can't fit in the house we already have that's so filled with stuff that we have to get a second home for our stuff. This industry called storage is 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 like meteoric and it's it's growing like crazy storage and waste if you think of those two industries if you want to make a fortune those are the two industries that are growing like crazy and it's a it's an such an indictment on our culture that we would be building those facilities for our things rather than building building facilities for the human beings that don't have a place to live and um and that's a display of how even the best of us need to relook at the way we're living. You know, we don't need one-tenth of what we all have. I mean, even the people listening to this who can't make ends meet are probably in that category too. So the consumer culture is so heavy, so intense, so um, such a predatory uh, conversation that we're swimming in. I mean, we used to be, I often say that when I was growing up, one of the the words in the lexicon that was very frequently used was this word called citizen. If you think of what a citizen is, it's he or she who uh, is responsible or holds himself accountable for the well-being of the community, the well-being of the state, the well-being of the 
country, the well-being of the world, a citizen. We don't call ourselves that anymore. We call ourselves consumers. That's our, that's our label for ourselves. That's how we relate to each other, really. That's how our politicians relate to us. They call us consumers. They refer to us as consumers. They measure us as consumers. That's how we're, we're related to. And the word consumer means he or she who takes, depletes, diminishes, or destroys. That's an ugly label for a human being. So I'm, I'm suggesting that there, isn't, there aren't any of us who escape this, um, this relabeling of a human being into someone who takes, depletes, diminishes, or destroys as much as possible every day. Now, I know people here at CIS and people sitting in this audience are not doing that, but we're in that world and maybe we're caught in it too, to a degree that's way more than we know. So that doesn't help you, you know, go from the BART station to, the to your of, office. The safety of the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, without passing people that right. are mentally ill, homeless. Hungry. Hungry, you know, addicted to some horrible drug. Um, uh, my way of dealing with that is... Is is to be um, try not to go unconscious. I mean, kind of personally, I'll just say I'm. It's Lent. What we're yes. doing this mm-hmm. this um, mm-hmm. podcast during Lent. Mm-hmm. I have a. I do. I'm. I'm really not Catholic anymore. To tell you the honest, God truth, but I love Lent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I it's do. Good Lent. to take stock. Mm-hmm. And in, during Lent, I have a. a, a you know, I give up things and I yeah. do this whole thing. And one of the things I do is I have a practice that I uh, either speak to or um, a- acknowledge somehow or actually touch every homeless person who's in my path for 40 days um, to connect to their humanity, even if they're a little nutty, unless it's unsafe to talk to them or to touch them, but to acknowledge them. Um realize there's a human being over there but for the grace of god go i kind of and um it's amazing to do that if you just tried it one day coming to work it's amazing i mean i don't cross the street and i don't go out of my way but if someone's in my path um because if someone's in that condition they have really um they're a human being and they're in so much pain and they've lost whatever community they came from, whatever family they came from. So um, that's one thing that I do. I, I, I can't tell you what to do about it, except that we need to change the way we're living. We need to um, realize that that is not unrelated to the way we're living. That is related to the way we're living. And and that, um, you know, it, we would like it to go away. We'd like the government to do more. We'd like lo- all those things. And then to also um, do everything we can to contribute to the brave and completely courageous people and organizations who are addressing it. You know, if, it, if you're in action with an issue that you're upset about, uh, you don't have time to be upset about it anymore because you're in action doing something about it. So those are a few recommendations, but I really don't know. You and I think all of us don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. That's 
helpful. And when I said getting into the safety of the building, of course, I meant you can get busy and you can forget about it. Yeah, um, right. And right. that's the that's the the challenge of how to stay awake. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Really yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. And in some cases, going numb is what you've got to do to 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 you know lead your life but we can't go numb permanently because that's what that's what's caused all this to happen the numbness the unconsciousness the thinking that it's somebody else's job um that has all these problems just burgeoning in front of our face mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we can't ignore them yeah anymore right. which right. maybe is another sign of the point that we're at here so you you mentioned, you know, Eve, and I certainly would not exclude myself being in this building of being, I've already acknowledged, I'm much more on the scarcity framework. What if there's not enough? I want my children to have a better life than I had. I want, which translates to more mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, you know, I need to squirrel it away because you've got to have enough, all of these things. But you and I are both grandmothers. We are. Yes. <laughs> and so I was really struck um, with your story about shopping for Aya. <laughs> and, um, and I know this, this was a story of, you know, the, the, the wonderful because we both have the most extraordinary grandchildren on the face of the earth. Yes, of course. Um, I'll, I'll share true. that with you. It's but, true. Um, okay. <laughs> but this desire to endow, mm-hmm. to exceed, mm-hmm. to, to give, and yet Obviously, if there is a change that's happening, one of the answers is, is what we're doing with children. Yeah, yeah. And so there were two things that really struck me in that, so I'll try to address them. One was the when it really comes home to mine, it's easy to fall into that um, actually scarcity grabby mentality. Mm-hmm. 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 And then the other side of it is practices to help these little ones be able to enter into this new reality that must come. So it's a, it's a double a double observational question. Yeah, I I am um, I think it's really challenging uh to raise children in a way that they stay aware and conscious and particularly don't get as caught as I think my generation has been in the in the consumer madness. Um but I think you're referring to the, my own story of getting caught in it myself, yes. which I am, you know, every day. So this is not rare. I'm just going to tell a story about um, when my first grandchild was born, and it was in 1999. So um, <clears throat> it was a while back. She's now 18 years mm. old, almost 19. Um, and uh, no, she must be almost 20. <gasps> oh, God. <laughs> I just got that right now. Holy moly. <laughs> Oh, dear. Okay. So anyway, um, it was after I had been working for 20 years or more on ending world hunger. So you were awake. I was a pretty awake yeah. character. I mean, mm-hmm. compared to, I don't know, it's all relative, but awaker than I was mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. than that. You knew some things. I knew some things. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, connected with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon. So I was beginning to really get engaged in, in the um, environmental issues that face us, which I'm sure we'll probably get to. And so I was, you know, I was kind of like in the environmental world and I was looking at all those things. And then my granddaughter was born and um, I went nuts, but I didn't know I was going nuts. I was my first grandchild and I wanted to buy her 
everything. I mean, she was this tiny little person. And I, I, I like to say that I, I sort of bought everything that was in my path that was, um, that was uh, little and pink <laughs> for her. And she, when she was like two weeks old, my son, Zachary is his name, he's very highly conscious human being and about environmental issues and consumerism and stuff. He said, Mom, what has come over you? She can, we can't even fit her in the crib now. There's so much stuff in there. <laughs> you have got to cool it, you know, and I'd like you to really pay attention to what you're buying, too. You're not looking at where it was made and what it's made of and whether it was... And he started listing all these things that I had bought her that were made with perhaps uh, suspiciously some slave labor in some place in Indonesia and... It was sort of toxic, this, and I, I just was, I totally lost my way. And um, I was so grateful for that. I was grateful that I fell off the step, if I could put it that way, that I fell off the kind of environmental wagon um, for a couple of weeks so I could realize what everybody else, how, how, how it is for everybody else, or not everybody else, but, you know, when you really are not aware, you just do what the, you know, the marketers and the, and the advertisers tell you to do. Uh, you you think that's your idea? Um, and when and I and the came, stuff's so cute, and it's so adorable, and it's yeah, and it's on sale. And, uh-huh. you know, um, so and, yeah, let's get two. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then when I woke up, and he he started to tell me what he the kind of the parameters of what how he wanted me to look at things. It was a challenge. It was a real challenge to to really do that well. And um, I'm so grateful to him for that. That was a real awakening for me. Um, and so in, in raising our kids, you know, I, I t- kind of didn't get it right at the beginning um, that, uh, that that's part of the responsibility of a parent to really awaken their children to the, the, the perils of the consumer culture. Um, but with my grandchildren, I, I, do, I really do understand that. And, you know, they're not my kids, so I have to be a little bit, you know, careful there. Grandmothers have to watch out for that. Indeed, um, but fortunately, my uh, the parents of my grandkids are pretty conscious people, so they they appreciate it. And um, we do things with our grandkids um, like we, um, you know, we had this practice. I have to reinstate this now that I'm saying this out loud, and it's going to be on a podcast, and people are listening <laughs> to me. Where um, when the when the kids would want to, let's say a Barbie doll or one of those things that's marketed so that they can't live without it, or the shoes that light up when they run, and they're you're not going to buy it for them. Uh, you you say to the, you can say to the child that look and see what the price is on that, and then they see twenty four ninety five. When we get home, let's put twenty four ninety five or twenty five dollars in a glass jar since you're not go- we're not going to buy that and you're not going to have that and you're going to be fine without it um uh and we'll uh we'll just keep accumulating some some uh, money in that glass jar for the things that you're not going to buy because you really know you don't need them and um we did this for like a 3 or 4 months and this jar <laughs> had so much money in it and then the kids sat down and they decided where they would want to contribute that money um, and that really, really, really woke them up. Really woke them up. That's a a, a practice. Yes, absolutely. Uh, another practice we we initiated with actually our children, and then with our grandchildren, is giving them a certain amount of money in Thanksgiving, 
uh, letting them know that uh, what we'd like them to consider is to uh, contribute to three organizations and causes that they believe in and volunteer with at least one of them between now and Christmas, if you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah. And then on Christmas Eve, we have a conversation, what did they contribute to and why? What was their experience of, of, of volunteering? And what kind of difference do they think they made? Rather than giving them a whole bunch of Christmas presents. Um, or, you know, I have hundreds of things like that. But there's ways to really wake your kids up and keep them awake that they're going to be, that they're targeted um, by by the consumer culture. They're really targeted, yes. heavy-duty targeted. Yes, definitely. And that they don't need to fall prey to that. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. I, I just appreciated that because, you know, Guilty as charged. Um, there's nothing like shopping for cute things for grandchildren. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but it's very, um, I guess, self-absorbed. These are these are my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I loved your uh, your your statement of, of a legacy is the life you've lived, not what not what you leave. Yeah. Um, and what are we living with them? Mm-hmm. So let let's turn for a moment. You mentioned environment. And you talked a few moments ago about waste, and we have this wonderful system where now our waste is starting to not find a recipient, our plastic waste in particular. So what about the connections there, again, with this picture of the sufficiency that there is enough, but it's finite, um, against we can grow forever and have more and more. I've lost track. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I would I would say that with the... Um, Global warming, which is the term that we use at the Pachamama Alliance Mm -hmm. uh, rather than climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul Hawken is one of our colleagues and and advisors and friends and the great ecologist and author and, um, you know, genius in my view. Um, And he is the author of a a very important new book called Drawdown, which uh, has really kind of swept the world uh, with the news that we can reverse global warming. Uh, that mitigating it, trying to stop it, trying to slow it down is uh, is not actually the right response, that the accurate response is recognizing that it is reversible and we can reverse it. And um, I, I wanted to get that in there because yes. it's so important. Um, but I also he also says that the words climate change doesn't really describe the climate changes all the time, uh, and it it needs to change, and it is important to change. What he thinks that we need to kind of language is the global warming, and I love the way Paul talks about it. So I'm going to you know kind of repeat some of the things that he says. He says that global warming is brilliant feedback. It's feedback. It's not this horrible tragedy. It's not that they were horribly wrong. It's, it's everything's working perfectly. It is feedback. It's perfect feedback for a major course correction for our species. <laughs> and if we can see it as feedback, then we will make the course correction. Um, you know, there's so many people who think you know, we have so many years or so many months or so many decades, and nobody really knows what that is. And some people are saying it's too late, and there's all of those 
uh, kind of doomsday sayers. Um, but what Paul says, it's not game over, it's game on. Mm. We've never had anything that involves every single living person on this planet. No one can escape it. It's bigger than government. It's bigger than business. It's bigger than anybody's religious beliefs. It is what could pull, what can pull us together as a species and recognize our accountability and responsibility to read this feedback and course correct. And um, the book Drawdown just to do a little plug for it, has the 100 solutions, the top solutions for global warming. The 100 top solutions for global warming. Everybody should immediately go out and (laughs) buy that book and pick the solutions that you're going to get behind because we can reverse it. And to me, that's the most exciting news I've heard in, in, I don't know if my whole life, but probably in my, the recent years of my life. Um, and and I think it's really, really important to spread that news so that the fear of – and it's a scarcity thing, mm-hmm. fear that we're going to run out of water, we're going to run out of land, we're going to run out of air. All of that it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. We'll cause that to happen if we don't actually realize the feedback is we can reverse this. We caused it. It is human-caused, and we can undo it. We can unravel it. And that is so exciting that is so exciting. So um, our our world is, you know, you know, we're living at a time when the crises are just monumental. I mean, they're just like sometimes overwhelming. At the same time, we live in a world where the breakthroughs, the possibilities, the technologies, the inventions, the the um, the uprising of people, uh, people's consciousness, the evolutionary leaps that we're all in is greater than any previous time in history. I say those two two things are perfect match for each other. We're living in a time where we say in this wonderful program at Pachamama Alliance, we're living in a time where we can live the most meaningful lives any generation of human beings has ever lived. The choices we make impact the future of life for a thousand years. And that's not a burden. That's an opportunity to realize how much your life matters. That ennobles your life. That gives you the privilege of making conscious, beautiful choices that you know are the choices that match your your soul and your heart. So what was your question? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Did you have a question? I'm sure I did. Uh, Anyway, I'm... That we are... In a, in a system change, clearly. I, I started huge, with waste, I think. But, yeah, um, yeah. but So really, this is a very ecological picture. It's the system of money, and you know, you talk about flow and damming it and letting it flow through us, the, the spiritual connection, the soul connection, and then this very real manifestation on this extraordinary earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I but remember you asked me about waste. I, well, That's way back there. Reached a point where China doesn't want it, and we're seeing yeah. we're seeing that we have we have it's a little like the storage containers. Yeah, right. We filled them. Right. Um, well, you know, there's no waste in nature; mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many brilliant, brilliant people in in in, in Paul's book. There's there's some it does address this that. Um, you know, waste, we say in our, our programs at Pachamama Alliance, is a product of poor design, that it's not necessary, that we can 
live with no waste. That is possible. Nature does that beautifully and can teach us that. And uh, there's a wonderful line from uh, Julia Butterfly Hill um, that's also in our programs. And um, she says, where's a way? There's no such place. There's no such place. There is no away. So when we we have this mentality and our, our conversation is that we can throw something away, uh, that even in our language, embedded in our language, is a belief that there's an away, but there is no away. So we're now facing the away that we thought we had, which has come back to haunt us in you know this island of plastic bottles in the ocean, etc. So I, I, I don't have a solution for that. I know that there are many, 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 many people who are realizing that there are incredible solutions to that. Um, uh, and I think it's for those of us who are concerned about it, which I hope is everybody, um, to find ways to engage with those solutions. Um, because I'll just say this again, and then I'll go to the question you just asked me, which I can't remember either, but you'll remember it maybe, um, is that um, that when you're all the things that you're worried about, if you go to work, if you get an action yourself to make a contribution to their solution, you stop worrying about them, and you can find that integrity in your life that will give you some peace. And it makes a difference. And it makes a difference. Every individual. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. I think one of the things I'm maybe most grateful for having read this and met you and spoken with you tonight is that this is a picture of hope. That yes, there is enough. That we can have sufficiency. That individual, you know, never never underestimate the power of one person. Um, That richness is in all of us Um, and just this mobilization of the will to action Um, and so I really thank you for that because I think one of our challenges right now is that the fear and anxiety and the what-ifs become paralyzing Uh, we we certainly see it every day Um, so while, while we wrap up I wonder if you would finish this section for us and for the people listening out in the virtual world. They're not virtual, but um, <laughs> with this wonderful parable of the eagle and the, the, con, the eagle and the, con, the condor. The, the eagle and the condor. This, these, ah. this wonderful story that, again, I think is filled with hope as an image as we go through the falling apart. Okay. Please. Well, um, this is a... Um Prophecy that's um, that's uh, been told for millennium in the Andes and in the Amazon by indigenous people, and it's called the prophecy of the eagle and the condor. And um, uh, it is said that in this uh, this time, this the beginning of the twenty first century, essentially, it's the beginning of the of the next Pachacuti, and a Pachacuti is a five hundred year cycle by our way of counting. Um, that indigenous people see uh, that we've just completed uh, right around 1992-ish, 19, right around the year 2000, uh, a Pachacuti, uh, they call it, of darkness, a dominance and darkness, which they say began right around 1492, if that's a familiar... <laughs> 
1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah, Ooh. right. Yeah. Uh, so there's that we're completing a, a, a 500-year cycle of dominance and darkness, um, and that we're moving into the next Pachacuti. And they say that they're uh, that the um, that the eagle people. Uh, the people who are the people of the eagle, they call uh, people like us, the people are the people of the mind. And um, the people of the mind uh, see most everything through the genius of the mind. And by the end of this uh, this Pachacuti, where we are uh, just completing and about to start the next Pachacuti, the eagle people, uh, the, the prophecy says, will reach um, a kind of zenith in their capacity to use the mind. In fact, the, pro- the prophecy says the eagle people will invent tools that extend the capacity of the mind. It's probably a prophecy about the technology and the computer. Um, and the eagle people will have reached a kind of zenith in their brilliance and uh, the use of the mind. Uh, uh, but uh, And they will be wealthy beyond any previous imagination. But they will be spiritually impoverished to their peril and their very survival will be at risk. Then they say that the condor people, which refers to them, the indigenous people, uh, which they would say the people who uh, see life primarily through the wisdom of the heart and the spirit world and their relationship with the natural world, the condor people, they say, will be in the minority on the planet. This is the prophecy from a millennium uh, at this time in history. But the condor people will be highly, highly sophisticated and in their zenith, in their understanding of the natural world and our proper relationship with the natural world and the wisdom of the heart. But they will be materially impoverished to their peril in any encounter with the eagle world, and their survival will be at risk. And the prophecy says that right around now, right around the year 2000, the beginning of the 21st century, the eagle people and the condor people will remember, remember that they are each other and come back together and fly together in the same skies, wing to wing, and the whole world will come back into balance for the next Pachacuti, which is the Pachacuti of balance and light. The one thing they say is that shifting from one 500-year Pachacuti cycle to the next will take about 25, 30 years. And during that time, Pachamama, which is their name for Mother Earth, will humble her creatures with huge climactic events, um, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, floods, fires, uh, earthquakes, that will humble all her creatures so they will remember their rightful relationship with her to go into the Pachacuti of balance and light the next 500 years. So it's a prophecy about right now. And um, that prophecy... You could say uh, the Pachamama Alliance, the work we do in the Amazon rainforest, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Amazon Watch, the Sierra Club, the many organizations that I'm sure people listening are involved with and people here in this room um, are the fulfillment of that prophecy. The eagle people and the condor people coming together to bring the world into the next Pachacuti of balance and light and allowing the mother, the great mother, Pachamama, to humble us so we remember our rightful relationship with her as we go into the next 500 years. 
I would just like to thank you, Lynn, um, for being here tonight. She flew back from New York this afternoon um, for the humanity and the warmth that you that shines through your words and obviously through your life of service um, and this extraordinary picture that money and examining our relationship with money can be transformative. Thank you. So thank you for your hope-filled words and actions and for sharing them with us tonight. Thank it's, you it's very been an much. Extraordinary gift. Well, so everyone, if we could show our attention. thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>